Hello and welcome to the Main EMS podcast. My name is Matthew Scholl. I'm the Main EMS medical director and with me today is Don Sheets. Hi folks. I'm the Main EMS education and training coordinator. Uh, thank you for joining us today. This is our ninth podcast um, and uh, we really appreciate you listening to this and hopefully there'll be uh, a lot of good information in here for you. Um, our format in the past has always been to give some updates and news to address some frequently asked questions and to launch into a, um, into a clinical topic that we're going to talk about. And uh, why don't we get going, Don? All right. A uh, few updates for folks. Got a lot of work going on with protocols right now, as many of you are probably aware. Uh, we've now gone through the blue, the pink, and the gold and section. In the, the gold section of the protocols, uh, next month we'll be talking about the green section or the trauma section, which will uh, primarily be our topic of discussion today in this podcast. And then we'll be following that with the red or cardiac section, and then the yellow, and last but not least, the purple, brown, gray, and black sections of the uh, protocol. Thank you to all, all of you who have participated in our protocol webinars. We'll reference this a bit more toward the end of the, uh, of the podcast to give you more information about these. But uh, for those of you who have sat through those and asked us questions and offered comments, we really appreciate that. And then um, today is September 22nd of 2014. Within the next few weeks, you can expect to see some of the change documents with proposed changes that the medical directors have issued for those three um, sections uh, coming out very shortly. Great. Uh, today is going to be a little bit uh, special as well. We're going to have uh, Dr. Tim Pei will be joining us uh, via uh, the Internet to actually have some of the discussions that we're going to have today. So if uh, if audio is a little bit spotty, please bear with us. Uh, we're going to try to make sure that that's as uh, smooth as possible. You know, this is a prior taped uh, uh, recording from earlier. We know there's a, a little bit of audio uh, issues, but I think from a volume standpoint and for the most part, it should run pretty smoothly. Uh, final, final bit before we get to our clinical uh, section, I wanted to thank everyone who has participated and assisted in our cardiac arrest um, QI project that the main EMS Quality Improvement uh, Committee has been working on for the last few months. This has been a really, really big project for the committee, and it's been very um, insightful. There's been a lot we've learned about through this project, and we really want to appreciate service leadership and others who have helped contribute data to that. You'll be hearing more about this um, in the near future. We'll be um, publicizing uh, the results through a letter that goes to all services. There will be, uh, in the next few weeks, some educational material that goes live, and we're anticipating that all that stuff is up and available by the end of October. Um, we have, for the first time in our state, been able to describe and, and, and define our outcome for all cardiac arrest rhythms as well as for VFVT. We've got some other really important information we want to share with you through our, our messaging around that. Uh, keep your eyes open for that, and if you have any questions, please contact Don and I through Don's email at Maine EMS. Uh, so let's get into um, some of the frequently asked questions. We've been hearing a lot from folks around the state. There's been some concerns that have been risen from uh, trauma surgeons as well as some of the leadership around the state about spine management and some concerns that folks uh, might uh, have prematurely considered some of um, uh, some changes to the main EMS protocols. And uh, what we would like to do today is spend some time with Dr. 
Tim Pei, who is our regional medical director from Region 3 and is responsible for updating the green section this time. And Dr. Pei's going to spend a little bit of time um, going through the history and background around spine management and where we, uh, how we got to where we are right now, and then some of the challenges that have come up to our current paradigms. Uh, at a future podcast, we'd like to introduce to you two other folks um, and we're hoping to coordinate with these guys and make this work out. But uh, one one of the uh, individuals is Dr. Richard Kamen from Connecticut. He is the state medical director uh, from Connecticut. And then Dr. Jim Swosey, who's the state medical director for New Hampshire. And the reason we want to introduce these two guys to you is that they are, uh, uh, Connecticut and New Hampshire, two of the first states that enacted some changes to their protocols that are similar to what we do now, but also have a few other spins on it. And we want to learn from them some lessons of their implementation process and, uh, and uh, take from them some, uh, some uh, pearls of wisdom that they've learned through their process. If you, if you think about what, what those two states did collectively, they adopted a process similar to what Maine did in the 1990s to consider which patients require management of the spine. But then they did a few things on, in, on top of that, and it's those things that we're going to talk about today in our FAQ section. So uh, with Don and I today is Dr. Tim Pei. Uh, Dr. Pei is the medical director for Region 3, um, the Kennebec Valley region. He's also the uh, medical director of the Maine General Emergency Department and is leading our um, green section changes. If you recall, green is our trauma section changes. And it's in here that the spine uh, management um, uh, changes have come up. And what we'd like to do with everyone today is spend some time talking about the history of spine management and what's led to this reevaluation of how we manage the spine. Uh, so, Tim, if you don't mind, could you give us a little bit of history behind why we're, we are where we are right now and some of the major sentinel literature pieces that have popped up in the last couple decades to get us to reevaluate how we manage patients for whom we're concerned regarding spine injury? Absolutely. So, um, to do this right, uh, we have to really go back 50 years um, to the birth of EMS. And even starting this discussion is, um, is groundbreaking because we're going to go through um, everything that's happened that kind of created EMS as a whole. And whenever you bring up spinal immobilization, spinal injuries, backboards, you really have to reach back to the first days. Um, and this is exciting for history buffs. Uh, and when you go back, the first article um, that starts this conversation is from a guy named Dr. Geisler in 1966. And he published in uh, um, the Medical Services Journal of Canada. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that journal exactly right. But anyway, this is our first touch on spinal mobilization. And really... Uh, you could argue one of the sentinel articles that led to um, the energy that created our EMS system. And what he does is he looks at a retrospective discussion of two patients, and he finds in his conclusions looking at these two is that directly due to the lack of, in his mind, appropriate spinal immobilization, these two patients had delayed onset of, of paraplegia. Uh, and this caused kind of a ripple effect through um through people that were invested in pre-hospital care at the time and, uh, and led to, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of concern. Um, Follow-up about five years after that was the first uh, 
publication of an article or a uh, um, this is a publication we'll just call it of called the emergency care and transportation of the sick and injured and this is from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and this has been continuously put out since then uh, but this first uh, orange book in 1971 took the concerns of Geisler in 66 and really put together protocols, you could think of it, looking back that far, uh, that were, again, um, guidelines for how to, we raised the concern in 66, and then this was how to meet that concern with, with clear instructions for pre-hospital providers. And what they were focused on is they, they introduced the idea of stabilizing the spine using a backboard and a cervical collar. And at the time, putting this in context, a motor vehicle crash in 1971 is a, is a far more dramatic event um, than, than most of our motor vehicle crashes now. So they were focused on unresponsive, multi-system trauma-injured patients and extricating them out of the vehicle and really trying to protect from a uncontrolled, uh, floppy, uh, manipulated song. Um, and then really looking at that, we haven't changed much since 1971 to today. There have been some changes in philosophy, but no changes on once you're concerned about a spine, how you'll mobilize it. It's still a backboard and a cervical collar. Uh, the, the next change that happened was Dr. Peter Goff's introduction of selective spinal clearance in the 1990s. And this in EMS, again, was a groundbreaking uh, move. This was something that put Maine on the map, you could say. Peter Goth at the time was a wilderness and expedition physician was his expertise in addition to being a uh, rural emergency medicine physician. Uh, and he was struggling with uh, the idea of applying these universal 1960s, 1970s philosophy of spinal care where if anybody showed any mechanism of injury, they were completely immobilized. And he could not apply that in any practical way to his expeditionary and wilderness medicine that he was focused on at the time. And so he basically applied some common sense um, medicine and evaluation to this and proposed this selective spinal clearance, which is what we know as clearing the spine today. At the time, it, it involved the concerns for mechanism. Um, and, um, and then in 2000, when the nexus um, uh, criteria for spine evaluation was published in the New England Journal, we had another update shortly thereafter. And nexus is really a, uh, a, a large study. It was 34,000 patients, 21 centers across America, uh, and it, it focused on what we do today to clear the spine of MS. Five different questions that you ask and examine uh, when you have this list that you check off, if, you, if the patient has the correct answers for all five, meaning they have no spine tenderness, they're not intoxicated, they're alert, there are no focal neuro deficits on an exam, and there are no distracting injuries, you can clear that spine. Um, this was groundbreaking for emergency medicine because for us in the ED, it meant we didn't have to image the patients. We could actually clear them off the, the, the board and, and, and uh, carry on with our evaluation without necessarily imaging their spine. In the ED, I mean, in the EMS in the field, we applied this to say on scene we could clear their spine and not immobilize them. And then what we did is John Burton in 2006 validated that application of Nexus to the field with another large study over a large amount of time. He looked at 32,000 main EMS transports over 12 months and basically challenged whether Nexus could be applied safely in the field, meaning does this truly accurately and reliably clear spines in the field as it does in the EED. 
And over those 32,000 transports, we as Maine EMS only miss a single isolated unstable T-spine fracture. The rest of our uh, um, fractures had any clinical significance were caught. Um, so this, this was, again, a groundbreaking art, uh, article, something that really defined and really told us that what we're doing today as far as identifying a patient is at, at risk for a spinal injury, evaluating them, if we decide by our protocol using it as it's written and completely all or nothing, you have to do every single piece of this protocol, which is what we do every day for spinal clearance, we have validated that it is reliable um, and it is safe. So what this has done is really reassured ourselves that when our process of deciding who needs to be cleared and who needs to be immobilized works. Totally sound, evidence-based, in the literature, it's something we can rely on and look back in an academic way with rigor and say that this is a reliable system that we have. The benefits, so the people, I know I take this for granted, but before this selective spinal clearance protocols were in place, we, we were backboarding as us, our veterans who are listening to this know, every single patient that had any possibility of a spinal fracture. After this was introduced, over half of those patients were never immobilized, and safely so. So a big, big impact on, on our patients, um, on us, and uh, on our... And after that literature, there really has been a rising flood of questions, not on can we clear spines, not on are we doing it safely, but on the fact of how we're splinting that spine once we determine that it's high risk. Um, these are the patients that you try to clear the spine and they fail. So you decide, I have to protect this one. And really what we're doing is I'm assuming in the field that this is a, a unstable, high-risk spine injury. At that point, how we immobilize that patient, there's been a tremendous amount of um, energy in the literature and by the, the academics to say, are we doing it right? And they've raised several questions. And one of them is, is our current means of slinting those patients, meaning a rigid, flat backboard, is it helping? Is it hurting? Uh, and are there any issues? Um, and what we found is there's really not been any literature that shows that it helps. There's no literature that shows that once you decide this patient is high risk for an unstable spine injury, that a backboard really is the right thing. Um, that is complicated. It, it, it's a true statement, but it's also complicated. Is have there been really good articles that have looked at it, and has it had a really uh, sound um, kind of vetting through the literature. Um, but with that said, nothing's been published that really is of reliable and strength and, and, and quality enough to say that this backboard really is the right thing to do. Um, with that said, we've also had a tremendous amount of literature that looks at saying that it hurts. And uh, one um, uh, article that's a comprehensive review of 17 randomized controlled trials that means these are high-quality, forward-looking. These are the kind of trials or studies in the literature that you can use to create EMS protocols show that all the different ways that we're splinting right now are causing many different adverse effects, and specifically, they're causing pain. So a patient that's on a backboard for an hour, you will find 24 hours later, this is a healthy volunteer that has no back issues, just spending an hour on a backboard, 24 hours later, they still have pain. And that's a big deal because what that translates to us in the emergency department is when I feel their spine after an hour on that backboard and they hurt on different places that I press on, I don't know if that's from the backboard or it's from an underlying fracture or injury. So I have to image in order to be safe and to be diligent um, with my exam. 
Um, so not only does it cause pain, it causes unnecessary radiologic testing. And that's a big deal when you get into CT scans and high millisieverts of radiation exposure. That can potentially put the risk patients at higher risk for cancer in theory. So we really want to avoid any, any risk. Uh, and if it's the backboard causing that uh, downstream increase in imaging, we really need to think hard of whether that's the right splint to use. Um, the other issues that came up was respiratory compromise, placing a patient on a flat backboard and putting straps across their chest and uh, strapping them down tightly in order to have a good quality immobilization done. Um, this, we know, causes uh, respiratory compromise, makes it harder to breathe, to breathe for patients. Um, and the last one is pressure sores, where all those pain points are of, of putting pressure against that backboard. With certain patients that are at high risk, uh, that causes tissue ischemia, uh, poor blood flow to different parts of their body, and that can later in their hospital stay lead to pressure sores, uh, skin breakdowns that open them up to chronic dilibate, uh, dil um, issues and infections and, and a lot of um, uh, hardship downstream. So um, all these together, pain, unnecessary radiologic testing, respiratory compromise, pressure sores, really start to build a story that backboards themselves may be hurting patients. Um, that doesn't mean it's not the right tool to use in certain circumstances. It doesn't mean that it's not uh, an excellent extrication tool, but it really means we need to be critical in our thinking of when do we need this device, and we really need to think and use judgment to say, is the risk of using it outweighed by the benefit? Um, other issues that have come up in addition to all this is there's been a really interesting look from some innovative uh, academics to say, how are we removing patients from a motor vehicle? And by using a backboard to remove a patient, is that really uh, the best means to limit motion of the spine? And what they did is they put uh, video motion cameras into use. Uh, they put motion detector sensors on patients. And they basically had, in several different studies, patients uh, do a series of different uh, uh, extrication type uh, events. So one was to take an elite team of EMS providers that are well experienced, well trained, good at practice extrication, had them extricate the patient in our traditional means that we do it today by protocol and by training. And then they compared that to the appropriate patient, which would be an alert, um, uh, aware uh, patient that confirms that they can understand instructions and go about instructions and they can safely move themselves without causing injury and they put a seat collar sometimes sometimes not and they took these patients and they told them not to move their neck or their spine and to actually self extricate out of the vehicle and with these motion uh, cameras they determined that in one study there was no difference between the appropriate patient well selected uh, self-extricating and the elite team of EMS providers extricating with backboard and our normal additional needs now. In another study, they found four times more C-spine movement with EMS-assisted extrication as opposed to self-extrication. So these raise some very interesting questions. Um, with studies like this in the literature, it really begs us to say, are we removing patients the correct way out of, out of uh, vehicles? Uh, and then can we extrapolate that into all other uh, spinal immobilization situations? The real thing that comes to this that we need to tease out and discuss as a group at the MDPB is who is the right patient for self-extrication? Um, and, and that's going to be an interesting question coming downstream.
the other issues that come up to speed uh, up up right in front on this is are standing takedowns um, the right thing anymore? Are there other ways to protect the spine, splint the spine, stabilize the spine, and then secure it uh, in a way that doesn't cause harm um, and doesn't hurt our patients? And, and these questions are actively being discussed, actively being debated by uh, main EMS right now. Uh, and we're hoping with the help of the MDPB, uh, our partners in other states that have had these discussions already, and with the Trauma Advisory Committee and our trauma surgical colleagues to come up with the best plan for me. Well, thank you, Tim, for that uh, history in the background. Um, as you can see, there's been a lot of thought and a lot of attention to this, and uh, Dr. Pei and others have been considering this for a while. It's premature for us to discuss any of the specific protocol changes, as that process must come to the medical directors and practice board first and foremost, and that conversation is actually upcoming in October. However, I think it's important to recognize there are some there are really uh, some important uh, guiding principles that the MDPB will be considering and discussing at that upcoming meeting. First and foremost, our spine management will continue. Our, our, our spinal identification will continue in ways that were set for us in the 1990s and really Anything we do will continue to be predicated on the work that Dr. Peter Goth and others have done uh, in identifying patients who require uh, spine management. And the, the big difference is that it's not just the C-spine, it's the entire spine. Uh, this is going to require diligence on our part. Uh, we've proven in the past, as Tim mentioned, through the work that Dr. Uh, uh, John Burton, uh, the prior main EMS medical director, and others did, We've proven that this protocol works. We've proven that we can apply this protocol and that when the protocol is applied properly, it identifies the right cohort of patients to immobilize. Um, this will continue to work the same way it does now, based in part on mechanism of injury as well as the patient's evaluation, their history, their, evaluate, their exam in front of you. And really the major change is the role of backboards uh, in uh, the management of these folks. And I hesitate to say that they'll be removed completely because I think a more appropriate um, way to think about this is that we will be uh, modifying the way backboards will be used. And this will not be a black or white, all or none situation. Backboards will continue to have a role, and, and that's most likely in uh, extricating patients uh, who cannot extricate themselves. So folks who have severe mental status changes, people who have severe uh, lower extremity injuries, uh, we'll probably still be using backboards to extricate. And there might be situations in which transporting a patient on a backboard is appropriate. Uh, situations where the backboard, for instance, is being used um, as part of the splinting strategy. Uh, patients in whom emesis is anticipated and you want to be able to roll the patient quickly. And there'll be other things that, that come up that uh, would be uh, reasons to continue using a backboard. However, the vast majority of patients, more than 95% of patients, we want to limit the use of backboards for all the reasons that Tim described. And this includes patients during interfacility transport. Now, another key and important principle that the MDPB will be uh, wrestling with is that this strategy will require more communication and much more collaboration between EMS providers and hospital providers. In part, we need to practice meticulous communication when describing our risk uh, assessment for spine injury to hospital providers. And we've got to make sure that hospital providers recognize that we are concerned about a spine injury. It's not going to be as obvious for hospital providers when the patient's not on a backboard. Um, granted, uh, cervical collars will still be in play, 
Um, but I think it's important to recognize that we need to communicate and collaborate, and not only in the, uh, describing our concern for spine injury, but then also in removing the patient from EMS litters to, um, to hospital stretchers. Those are going to be important uh, things to dialogue with hospitals around. I think it's also important that we have to remember this is not only a big change for EMS, it's going to be a big change for our hospital providers as well and our colleagues that we're dealing with, and that communicating our concerns it's likely that in areas of the state and all across the state that we will experience some concern from hospital providers initially when we start this process. And it's really important that we have constructive dialogues, and our intent is to make sure that there's plenty of resources out there for EMS providers. We're going to try to get the same information out to all of our hospital colleagues. But this is an appropriate time to have a dialogue and engage uh, with these colleagues to actually reach out to the medical directors and to many EMS staff to get some of those resources to that hospital so that this doesn't become a confrontational experience for you. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that the first person that is our concern is always our patient, and that's what we want to stress to uh, the clinicians that we're dealing with in the hospitals as well. That's, that's a great point, Don. Thanks for that. And that reminds me that there will be a lot of materials that the MDPB will be putting out, including a white paper as well as... Um, some uh, we're going to be doing some work with ATTAC and hopefully putting together a position paper. There'll be some presentations that are available, and uh, as well, we're hoping to record some multimedia uh, information for uh, uh, to share with hospitals, uh, either um, coming from the MDPB directly or coming from your service. Uh, keep in uh, keep in touch. Keep your eye on the on the MEMS ad and on the main EMS website for some of those resources as they come to, come to. And if you have any questions, please contact us. So thanks to Dr. Pei for joining us. Um, he was jo- Tim was joining us over uh, over the internet. So I'm sorry for some of the hiccups there with the audio, but I think for the most part it worked okay. Um, if folks want to be a part of this dialogue or a part of the conversation moving forward, there are a couple key dates that, to keep in mind. One of those dates is the upcoming TAC meeting, or that was called the Trauma Advisory Committee meeting. That meeting will be happening the fourth Tuesday of. October, that's October 28th, and it, this uh, this is one of the places that we, as Maine EMS, dialogue with our trauma surgeons and gain consensus on protocol changes. Remember that these are all ideas right now. None of this is protocolized, and all protocols are approved and vetted through the MDPB uh, with uh, official go-live dates announced thereafter. And if you'd like to listen in on what the medical directors are thinking about and considering, you're welcome to come to that Following that meeting will be some change documents which describe the changes to any protocols uh, upcoming, and you'll be able to see those as well. And finally, uh, for those of you who are able to attend the webinar on the green section changes, we appreciate your involvement. And for anyone interested, we will be holding webinars on the red section, the um, uh, yellow section, and the purple, brown, and gray sections all coming up. Uh, If you all remember, we've been attempting to have a webinar for each of the upcoming section revisions the month before that that section is addressed. And we've so far covered the blue, the gold, and uh, the pink and the green. So that leaves a couple more left. Uh, If you're interested in those, please keep uh, your eye on the main EMS website as well as your regional office's website. Those have been where we've been uh, publicizing those. And for folks who have come to those in the past, we really appreciate it. It's uh, important, I just want to stress that the purpose of these webinars is for both the MDPB to talk about 
potential upcoming changes, as well as uh, probably even potentially more importantly, is it's a chance for providers to actually ask questions of the MDPB, get some of the background about why some changes have happened or may be happening, as well as if there's information that you want to see in protocol, it's a chance for you to actually have that dialogue directly with a medical director and offer those suggestions. If you have suggestions to make, the MDPB has asked that if if this is um, some type of change in the actual medicine that we practice, that uh, you bring them evidence to help support that change uh, so that they can look at that and take it back to the MDPB. Well, again, as always, for any questions or comments or any suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please contact ManiMS through Don Sheets and his email address, which is available on the MEMS, MEMS Ed website. We really appreciate your participation in this podcast today, and we hope that you got a lot out of it. And again, if you want to be involved in upcoming discussions around spine management or in any of the other protocol changes, please uh, participate through the mechanisms described above. Thank you. All right, so this is uh, an additional part to our podcast. Thank you for attending the earlier session on spine management that we shared with Dr. Tim Pei. Uh, this is a very important section and uh, something that uh, Don and I have been talking about for the last couple of days, in particular responding to some of the emerging diseases that we're seeing in the United States right now. And we want to start with a general dialogue about emerging diseases, focus on some of the uh, most um, dramatic of those emerging diseases, then wrap the whole thing up, coming back to some general discussions. Uh, uh, anything to add, Don? No, I think it's just really important while we're having these discussions that people, this goes back to a lot of things we say in other podcasts, is that doing proper history is going to become the most paramount thing that you can do in dealing with any of these possible situations, and that it, we need to respond appropriately to these situations. Um, and we need to respond deliberately to these situations. And we'll talk a lot more about what that really means as we get through this process. Yeah, thank you. And, and one other qualifier I will mention is that it is currently October 1st, and the guidances that we discuss today and the facts that we dialogue about today are very likely to change as we gain more information about these emerging diseases. And so I think just as coming out the gates, I think it's important that everyone recognizes that maintaining a uh, eye to uh, some of the uh, ongoing information release, especially through the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, is going to be very, very important. That the information we give you right now could very likely be outdated as uh, as the these infections evolve. So, let's why don't we just start off and and just say you know there there are a lot of different emerging infectious diseases right now that we're hearing about in the news. Um, certainly, we've all heard about Ebola, and as of today, October 1st, we just had yesterday our first case diagnosed in the U.S. in the state of Texas in a hospital in Dallas. Uh, and from the information we have available to us right now, it appears as if this was a gentleman who uh, came from Liberia to visit family in Texas and uh, was not symptomatic en route but became symptomatic here in the U.S., now, Ebola is only one of the major U.S. epidemics that's going on right now, and enterovirus is one of the other uh, emerging diseases. And enterovirus is an important virus that's caused a lot of respiratory difficulty in children, and we're now learning about some of the post-respiratory um, uh, complications, uh, especially in the state of Colorado. And then finally, one of the other uh, diseases that we 
we need to consider and we need to think about, especially this time of year in the U.S., is influenza. And we are entering the influenza season uh, as we speak right now. And while there's been a very little uh, background activity in the U.S. or in the state of Maine, it is the time that we start seeing this activity occur. And so we wanted to really discuss these, um, these, these ideas, these uh, diseases. We want to use Ebola maybe as a template to consider since that's attracting a lot of attention right now and considering it's taking up a lot of uh, dialogue at local levels uh, right now. So first and foremost, maybe some background about Ebola. Ebola is a virus. It was first uh, described in 1976 in a uh, uh, river valley called the Ebola River Valley in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's one of the viruses that causes uh, hemorrhagic fever, so fever and uh, unexplained hemorrhage are two of the common features of this virus along with a lot of the other hemorrhagic fevers. It's relatively rare. As I mentioned, it was first described in 1976, and there have only been 24 outbreaks since uh, some of those have been very small outbreaks. Some of those have been larger outbreaks. And interestingly, we're, we're dealing with the l- largest outbreak uh, to date with um, 6,263 cases and uh, 2,917 deaths. And that's as of last week, so the last week in September. And those numbers may have even changed between that week and now. If you look at those numbers and you, you calculate the mortality, the mortality here is 47%, and that falls in line with the historic mortality from this disease, which is anywhere between 40 and 60% um, in the countries in which it's occurred. And as I mentioned earlier, we had our first patient diagnosed in the U.S. who had traveled from a country in which this disease is, uh, is very active. I just want to take a quick second and let folks know if you're uh, if you're listening to this and you're interested in some of these numbers and, and looking at this, um, we we do have a slide set that we're actually going to upload as a show note for um, people to take a look at later that will be on Memzed if you're interested. Thank you, Don. So some facts about Ebola: the, the likelihood of contracting Ebola is very low unless one of two things happen. And the one of the first of those is direct and unprotected contact with blood or body fluids of a person who's sick with Ebola or a person who's died from Ebola. Body fluids are defined as urine, saliva, feces, vomit, sweat, or semen. Uh, and that's one way to contract Ebola. The other way is to actually have a direct contact and or handling of uh, animals in areas where uh, Ebola is active. And so the animals we get concerned about are bats, which is one of the non-human reservoirs for disease and um, at one point was the suspected reservoir for this outbreak. And then uh, primates are another non-human reservoir for disease. So handling or close contact with those animals who are from an area with an Ebola outbreak or the, uh, isn't, is the second way to contract Ebola. Um, Right now, the CDC has defined uh, three uh, types of case definitions. There's persons under investigation, there's probable cases, and there's confirmed cases. A person under investigation has to have both clinical criteria, which are fever, headache, muscle pain, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, unexplained hemorrhage. But that person also has to have epidemiologic risk factors within the past 21 days before the onset of symptoms. Remember that the incubation period right now is a range of two to 21 days, with most folks falling into a five to eight day range, but up to 21 days is the incubation period. And those epidemiologic risk factors are contact with blood or body fluids or human remains of a patient known to have had or suspected to have had Ebola, 
Uh, second epidemiologic risk factor is residents in or travel to an area where Ebola transmission is active. And the third risk factor is direct handling of animals, again, from a disease endemic areas. And those two animals, once again, are bats and non-human primates. So that's what we would call a person under investigation. A probable case is a person under investigation whose epidemiologic risk factors include very high or even low-risk uh, exposures. And then a confirmed case is a case with laboratory-confirmed diagnostic evidence of Ebola virus infection. So just to bring this back, uh, the person, the patient in Dallas, Texas, is now a confirmed case based on the CDC's testing of, his, uh, of some of his labs yesterday on the 30th of September. Um, I think it is important to consider geography here and to, for right now to remember that the countries involved in this outbreak remain really four. It's Guinea, Liberia, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone, and those countries are in the western part of Africa, so central western Africa is the area where we're concerned about. And it remains those four countries where the, anyone who's contracted or uh, the disease has had some link to those those areas. And again, the recent case on U.S. soil is from a gentleman who came from Liberia, one of those four countries. There's um, different risk levels uh, for Ebola. There's high risk and low risk. The high risk levels are anyone who's had a percutaneous, meaning a needle stick, or a mucous membrane exposure to bloody or non-bloody body fluids from Ebola patients. And remember, the list of body fluids I mentioned earlier is pretty, um, uh, it, it includes nearly all body fluids, um, including sweat. Another high-risk exposure is direct skin contact with or exposure to blood or body fluids of an Ebola patient without the appropriate PPE. A third high-risk exposure is processing blood or body fluids of a confirmed Ebola patient without appropriate PPE or standard biosafety precautions. And the fourth high-risk exposure is direct contact with a dead body without appropriate PPE in a country where Ebola outbreak is occurring. That brings us to the lower risk exposures, and the low risk exposures really are uh, surround contact with Ebola patients, but maybe not direct contact, and such as household contact with an Ebola patient or close contact with Ebola patients, especially in healthcare settings or in community settings. Close contact is defined as being within three feet of an Ebola patient or within the patient's room or care area for a prolonged period of time while not wearing recommended PPE. So these have to be unprotected exposures to a patient, so you're not wearing PPE during those exposures. Another close contact is having direct, albeit brief, contact with a, an Ebola patient while not wearing uh, proper PPE. So that would be shaking hands, for instance, with an Ebola patient. And then um, it's important to recognize that close contact does not include uh, very limited non-contact exposures, i.e. you're walking down a hallway and a patient with Ebola walks in the opposite direction. That would not be considered close contact or a, or a low-risk exposure in those cases. Um, some final facts about Ebola is the incubation period is 2 to 21 days, and it's important to recognize that during that incubation period, the patient's not infectious. So in, the patient's not infectious until they begin experiencing symptoms. Um, that's why the CDC is not concerned about the other patients traveling on the flight of this gentleman from Liberia because he was not symptomatic at the time. It's also important to recognize that there's a lot of international screening of travelers gaining access to planes, and anyone who is uh, symptomatic with symptoms consistent with Ebola is not allowed to travel out of those countries at present. The signs and symptoms of Ebola really are um, 
they're actually not uh, very specific. It's, it's signs and symptoms you may see with a lot of other, other diseases, and it starts with sudden fever, chills, and muscle aches, and proceeds to include GI symptoms such as diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Patients can also have chest pain, shortness of breath, headaches are fairly common, uh, delirium, confusion, change in mental statuses is seen in this, in this disease, especially as a person gets more and more ill. And then in very severe cases, jaundice, uh, hemorrhage that's unexplained, and uh, severe weight loss can be seen. Um, again, those aren't necessarily very specific for Ebola. We might see uh, parts of those symptoms in other diseases, um, malaria, typhoid, or some of the other uh, exotic diseases that we don't see commonly in the U.S. that can have sudden onset of fever, chills, muscle aches. Um, we may see influenza present with sudden fever, chills, muscle aches, and, and lots of other diseases can have those those same uh, symptom onset. So it's not uh, a very specific uh, d- set of symptoms. What's more su- um, supportive of the diagnosis, though, are the risk factors we earlier discussed and the direct contact with another patient with Ebola or travel to a country with um, uh, very active Ebola outbreaks. Now, at present, the uh, treatment is predominantly supportive, and when we say supportive care, it's all the things we bring. So it's airway management, it's volume and resuscitation, et cetera, et cetera. There are, at this very point in time, some experimental um, therapies. There's an experimental vaccine that the FDA is actually in the process of testing. And there's an experimental treatment um, called ZMAP, which is a, it's in its clinical trials right now. Um, and at this point in time, I'm not aware that it's been deployed anywhere. However, with the severity of this disease and the breadth of, the, of this outbreak, there may be, uh, in the very near future, some uh, uh, increased discussions about those treatments and vaccines, and we may see some of those uh, deployed at some point. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how this might occur here locally. There are really, I think, two major scenarios. One is that a patient uh, contracts Ebola uh, somewhere else and travels to Maine. Right now, we don't have, uh, we've not seen um, uh, the U.S. as a uh, as, as one of those countries in which there is an uh, epidemic in, uh, in involvement of Ebola. So still to this point, at this very moment, we'd expect that someone gained or came into close contact with an Ebola patient or an Ebola patient's remains somewhere else was in an asymptomatic phase and then traveled back to the states, back to Maine in particular. Um, And then the other option or other possibility here is that a patient is asymptomatic as they board a flight or some other mechanism of travel and they become symptomatic en route, and they get diverted to one of our main airports. Um, Bangor is certainly one of the more likely because of its proximity to the Atlantic, uh, but uh, other airports uh, are also possibilities, I suppose. Um, So those are two of the possible scenarios, and as time goes on, more different scenarios might evolve. But for right now, at this very moment in time, the likelihood of contracting the disease in the U.S. is very, very low, um, and it the likelihood of contracting the disease is linked to uh, uh, being in contact with an Ebola patient and at this very moment remains uh, highly uh, anchored around those four countries we discussed earlier. I think it's really important to understand a little bit about geography here and recognize that uh, while Maine does have an immigrant population, um, that immigrant population's native countries are not countries or not commonly countries uh, that are involved in this outbreak. The um, majority of our immigrant population resides um, from actually uh, eastern Africa and the areas of Sudan, uh, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and the countries that are uh, 
at present involved in this outbreak really are Guinea, Liberia, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone, which are on the opposite side of the country. So don't necessarily jump to the conclusion that um, a patient who is originally from Africa or even any patient who's traveled to Africa is at risk. You really do need to ask a few more questions about where in Africa they were uh, before you uh, consider Ebola, because not all of Africa is involved in this, this outbreak. So let's shift gears here and talk about some of the current guidance and some of the current things that we're being asked to consider. Uh, the first and most important thing is to think about these emerging infectious diseases. Think about Ebola, think about influenza, think about any of the other emerging diseases the CDC is asking us to follow, and screen patients for those diseases. So in the case of uh, Ebola, uh, if you see a patient with the symptoms of Ebola, again, those are fever, headache, muscle pain, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, unexplained hemorrhage, if you see a patient with those symptoms, screen them for risk factors. The risk factors, again, really center around either direct exposure to a patient or a patient's body fluids with Ebola or travel to a country uh, where uh, Ebola is endemic. But don't stop there. Also think about other important infectious diseases, such as influenza, and ask about contact with patients with known influenza or contact with other folks about uh, influenza. Uh, and think about this not necessarily from just Ebola, but think about this from an all-hazards approach. Um, so the first guidance is screen, consider these emerging infectious diseases. Remember, with Ebola, uh, the symptoms uh, are not uh, – you have to have more than just symptoms, and the other piece of that is risk factors, and we've talked about the risk factors earlier. Now, the second piece of the guidance coming from the CDC is to report your concern about the presence of disease. Um, and this is guidance specific to Ebola, but I think it also, um, it, we found it helpful in 2009 and 2010 when EMS services would report the presence of influenza-like illnesses to hospitals so that hospitals could prepare and be aware of these incoming patients. So when you, uh, when you screen for symptoms, when you screen for risk factors, consider alerting your hospital about your concerns, especially with Ebola if it becomes more active in the U.S., but also with other diseases such as influenza. So uh, one of the guidances is for EMD to screen and to give that information to EMS. Another guidance is for EMS to screen and give that guidance to the hospitals. And then the hospitals have obligations to report to um, public health and the CDC, and there's some other actors and players who get involved from that point on. And there's also special circumstances if disease presence becomes evident in flight. The third guidance regarding Ebola is to wear proper PPE and consider modification of management. And I would, I would break this into two pieces, the proper PPE and then the modification of management. The proper PPP, PPE piece is actually not necessarily exclusive for Ebola. It should permeate all of our interactions with patients with these symptoms, fever plus myalgias, headache, etc. And we should consider the right approach for all patients, especially the ones with, uh, with influenza-like illnesses, because again, that's going to be more common and, and, and more likely for us to engage in. Um, for Ebola, though, the PPE is standard contact and droplet precautions, and what that means is that we would wear gowns, gloves, and these gowns should be fluid-resistant and permeable. We need eye protection uh, that uh, fully covers the front and sides of the face, and then a face mask. And then in certain situations, we may want to engage in a higher level of personal protection, especially if uh, dealing with uh, patient remains or uh, dealing with situations in which there's more likelihood of exposure to body fluids or where there are a lot of body fluids, i.e. a patient with hemorrhage, a patient with emesis, a patient with diarrhea, etc. And then there's also this consideration of modification of, of medical management. And 
the idea here is to limit activities during transport especially that increase the risk of exposure to infectious material. And those things would be uh, percutaneous access, i.e. IV access, IO access, uh, airway management, uh, if, if that can be uh, managed conservatively or managed prior to transport, any uh, resuscitation, et cetera. When needles are used, they should be uh, they should be limited as much as possible, but when they are used, they should be dis- disposed of in a puncture-proof container and should be handled with extreme care. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, any IV access should be limited. So that's any phlebotomy, any uh, procedures, any testing, any, uh, any fluids. They should be limited unless exceedingly uh, important. And those are some of the, again, guidances for, for Ebola from the CDC. So wrapping this up, where are we and, and, and what, should, what, what should happen from this? I, I think it's important to remember that it's essential for us as EMS providers to keep, uh, remain aware and cognizant of emerging infectious diseases. Um, I think it's also important to con- continue to recall that the likelihood of encountering an Ebola patient is, remains low. I mean, I, I think that right now the majority of activity is centered around these four countries in Western Africa. And um, even with the recent development of a patient who's, uh, who's uh, contracted Ebola in Liberia and came to the U.S., and now residing in, in Dallas, at this moment, I, th- I think we re- believe the likelihood it remains low. That could change over time, and so maintaining an awareness and contact with the CDC through their website, et cetera, is important. Um, but I think it's important as we enter in this time of year to remember uh, to uh, remain cognizant of tr- transmissible infectious diseases in patients with fevers, consider activating an all-hazards approach, and engaging in proper protective strategies, especially since this is also influenza season. And then also remember uh, to alert your receiving hospitals about your concerns if there's a major outbreak in the U.S. of influenza uh, if there are patients with risk factors and symptoms consistent with Ebola, certainly alerting your hospital uh, is an important step. I think for right now, um, we want to consider the currently active emerging infectious diseases. Uh, those, are, again, include Ebola, the enterovirus uh, 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 epidemic we're seeing in the West and Midwest right now, but also in influenza. We want to consider these patients in the proper symptom set, but remember those symptoms are relatively nonspecific, and so we want to ask also about uh, uh, any risk factors. That would include contact or travel history, which we may not do as commonly right now, especially the travel history part. I I would suggest uh, as an EMS provider, or especially as an EMS leader, to uh, continue to follow the CDC's website or any guidance from the CDC about this, uh, about, about Ebola, about enterovirus, about influenza or other um, emerging diseases. And then remember to practice proper personal protection, um, especially as we enter in the flu season. We want to make sure that with patients with fever and flu-like illness uh, symptoms to uh, uh, consider vaccination as a uh, strategy to prevent disease, uh, pre- consider face masking the patient if it's at all appropriate, and then uh, for our providers to wear proper PPE, and that would include face masks, uh, gloves, hand washing, cough protection, uh, protecting mucous membranes, etc. As we go on, I think uh, certainly as main EMS staff and, and medical directors, the MDPB, we're 
very closely watching this um, this uh, disease process as well as other disease processes, influenza in, in particular. I think as a service, there are opportunities to consider the CDC's guidance around influenza, around Ebola or other emerging diseases, consider the proper level of PPE um, for those diseases, and really start thinking about communication plans and dialoguing with local hospitals in your catchment area about this. From a main EMS standpoint, we're also watching this very closely. We're, um, we're uh, remaining in contact with our public health uh, officials in the state, especially Maine CDC, um, and we'll start thinking about next steps as they become more evident. And those next steps would be to deploy statewide screening tools through EMD. It might be to, to deploy specific protocols for interactions with patients with suspected Ebola, et cetera. We're not there yet, and I don't, in, don't want to uh, incite any panic, but I think it's important to recognize that we are considering this, thinking this, and trying to uh, be proactive in the approach to this. But the most important piece here is to remember to screen, to think about this, to report your concerns, and to wear proper PPE if nothing else, PPP active against influenza patients. I know one question that is going to come up from people. Um, you referenced multiple times throughout this uh, face mask, and uh, the question that will come up is, are you referring to a surgical face mask or are you referring to an N95? At present, uh, so face masks, I, I think it, it's, it, it depends on what we're concerned about. Um, and the guidance on uh, Ebola is different than the guidance on influenza right now. Remember, within, with H1N1, we were recommending N95s, but at present, the current document, the current guidance from CDC is a surgical face mask for this season's influenza. Great. Uh, one last thing for people out there. If you could help us form an appropriate response to this, this possibility in talking about an, an infectious disease, help us permeate this message by talking to your colleagues, encouraging people to actually listen to this podcast, or reach out to Maine EMS staff if they have questions, uh, one of the things that we're really trying to do with this this podcast is respond to things in a timely manner, and it would be a great help to uh, our system if we could be passing along good information in a, in a timely manner. So help us get that message out and, and talk with your coworkers and leadership and try to help us with this. And then in closing, again, I'll just reiterate for a third time that the information we're giving you today is specific to the information we have to give you today, and as, as time goes on, undoubtedly, as we enter into the flu season, as this Ebola um, outbreak evolves, there will be new information. And so please listen to this now. Uh, recognize, though, that the information we've given you right now is likely to evolve. And please consider following the CDC's website and tracking along for developments in these two, uh, uh, these two uh, outbreaks. Thank you very much. And uh, as always, please let Don and I know your thoughts about this, this content. Also, if you have any questions or any comments for us, please send them to Don, Don's website at Maine uh, EMS. And we appreciate your, uh, your listening.